Escaped Sapiens. Will the widespread adoption of advanced drone technology produce a safer world in which less combatants are put in harm's way and where soldiers and peacekeepers are able to act more precisely and humanely in a crisis zone? Or will the prospect of clean and remote warfare lead governments to engage in more conflict and enable both state and non-state actors to cheaply expand their arsenals? In this episode of the Escape Sapiens podcast, I speak with Michael Boyle, who is an Associate Professor of Political Science at LaSalle University and a Senior Fellow of the Foreign Policy Research Institute in the US. We discuss the increasing use of drones in combat, policing, and surveillance, and the tactical, political, legal, and practical implications of their introduction. This is one of the more fascinating and insightful conversations I've ever had. I hope you'll enjoy listening to what Michael has to say, and that the conversation will be just as eye-opening for you as it was for me. I noticed uh, you were a fellow, you were a Fulbright fellow in ANU. What, what connected you to ANU in Australia? Yeah, so uh, I was spent a year in Australia. I absolutely had a wonderful time. Um, it was around 2004, 2005. I was working on my first book, which was an outgrowth of my doctoral dissertation. And my doctoral dissertation was on uh, violence in post-conflict states. So you know, that's one of the ways that I got to looking at drones later is looking at political violence. That's really the angle that I came at drones from. So my first book was on violence in post-conflict states, and I published the book in around 2014. It took me a while to get the book finally finished. Um, but of the case studies in the book, I did Kosovo, Bosnia, Rwanda, and East Timor. And I was interested particularly in the East Timor aspect because Australia, as you know, had led the intervention in East mm. Timor in 1999. And I wanted to go to East Timor to do some field work as well as to work with people in the ANU who had done the kind of Asia-Pacific security stuff that I really hadn't done as part of my doctoral dissertation. So I applied to go and be based in the, Inter the Department of International Relations in the Research School of Asian and Pacific Studies at ANU. And I had a wonderful year there working with some of the experts that were there. And then I did a lot of work on the sort of historical background in East Timor, the Australian intervention. I did interviews with policymakers. And then I actually went to East Timor to try to collect crime statistics and violence statistics. Because what I was attempting to track in the book was, you know, how what are the factors that make different post-conflict environments more or less violent? And there tends to be this kind of uh, conventional assumption that once the war ends, you no longer have violence. But what I was actually trying to explore in the book was that actually you get multiple forms of violence, whether it would be criminal violence, forms of strategic violence. Uh, and I was particularly looking at how when an armed group breaks apart into multiple fa factions, more or less, how factionalism within them drives post-conflict violence, often in a way that is kind of a little bit misleading because it doesn't restart the war, but you have sort of mass scale gang violence. And actually, as I was working on this, we started to see that dynamic emerge very much in Iraq, where the U.S. invasion in 2003 overthrew the Iraqi state, mass-scale factional violence, and it slipped back into civil war within a year or two. Um, but I had started working on that first, looking at Kosovo, looking at violence against uh, a Serbs by the KLA and factions within the KLA in Kosovo, and then I went to look at East Timor. Uh, and East Timor was an interesting case because there was comparatively less violence than you might have expected. Um, and so that was almost in a sense a case where I wanted to know kind of why the dog didn't bark. And, you know, why was there less violence there than there were in some other post-conflict states? Were you able to work out why? Was there anything you could determine? Yeah. So I, I, basically the overall ar argument of the book, it has to do a little bit about strategic incentives. In other words, you know, is a group brought into the settlement and what kind of material or domestic material or what I call domestic rewards are given to the group to essentially in, be able to pay off its members. So you need to think about armed groups that are fighting civil wars as having an internal constituency they need to satisfy with rewards. But it was also about their internal organizational capacity for what I called in-group policing, the extent to which they retained um, internal security forces, internal intelligence forces that allowed them to control their factions. 
And when you had cases under which those groups were more or less brought into, kept more or less intact, they were actually better off in controlling violence than they were if they were forcibly demobilized. If you forcibly demobilized them into an army, but they had to shut off some of their policing functions and intelligence functions, you had more violence. So if you take out the leadership structure, that's when you get sort of these uh, disintegrated factions that... Or if you take them out, or weirdly, if the leadership structure goes legitimate. So one problem that we have in a lot of these cases is the leadership of an existing armed group goes into the political party structure. And then what happens is when you have the sort of mechanisms of control over violence decay, you start to have mass scale factional violence. So that really presents an interesting dilemma, right? If the war ends, you think you want to demobilize everybody, but if you rapidly demobilize everybody, you might actually shed the sort of mechanisms of internal control and reward that allow you to control factions within your ranks. And obviously a lot of this depends on the degree of internal cohesion that the group has initially anyway. Uh, and so, you know, when we think about armed groups, we tend to think of them as kind of homogenous. They're all one sort of structure. But in practice, when you actually look at armed groups, you have some that operate like militaries with very strong internal control and some that have much weaker internal control. And so the variations in the kind of original endowments matter a lot as well. Um, and part of the other story that came out of the book was has to do a lot with policing and the degree to which you have a policing strategy that is sensitive to and recognizes forms of political violence. Um, you know, we tended to have this view, at least at that time, I think it's grown a lot since then, that, well, when the war ends, everything that happens after the war is just ordinary criminal violence, that we, they sort of was a systematic underestimate, underestimating of the degree of strategic violence that happened after the war. The assumption was, well, when the war ends, that's it. But, you know, if you look at a lot of cases, you see different forms of strategic violence continue for a long time. Um, I often tell American audiences, you know, very much like look at the violence in the Reconstruction, which has been kind of whitewashed out of American history. But when we saw the end of the American Civil War, there was enormous violence against free blacks at the end of the Reconstruction and, and systematic attempts by groups like the Ku Klux Klan to stop blacks from voting. That, that was what happened in the Reconstruction. We tend to whitewash that out of American history, but that's another example of strategic violence continuing after the war. Um, so, so was Australia responsible for Reconstruction and, and did they do a good job in the cases of East Timor? They did do a good job. So they were not fully responsible for reconstruction. At the time, there was an Australian-led uh, peacekeeping mission called Interfet uh, that was an Australian military-run peacekeeping operation. So part of the reason I was in Australia was to work with the security states people to figure out how that mission operated and what they tried to do. There was also in parallel UN policing operation. So some of what I was doing was collecting UN policing data as well. Um, and that was an interesting case where the UN was trying to set up, both in Kosovo and in East Timor, their own rapid international police forces in order to control violence in post-conflict states. And that, that was in itself a very interesting problem because you would have people who were not from that society, who didn't have what I would describe as the kind of local knowledge, didn't have the language, didn't understand in some cases the culture, trying to, to operate a police force under a UN auspices in a post-conflict environment. Um, hmm. And so, you know, it was, uh, what I was trying to do is interviewed when I was in East Timor, I interviewed people that were part of the military service, but also people who were part of the UN, and also people on the ground as well, trying to collect as much statistics as I could. So did you embed in any of the militant groups as part of that, or? No, there was no way to really do that. And to be honest, that's one of the, the more difficult things. I mean, when you're talking about active post-conflict violence, you're never gonna get you know, institutional review board approval to do anything like that. I, I tried deliberately to avoid that, also in part because there were real issues, I found ethical issues, especially when you work in a post-conflict environment, about interviewing people in militant groups that A, they may incriminate themselves, and B, they may already be victims themselves. And so you have to be very careful about uh, directly dealing with victims, directly getting information that would incriminate individuals. So I tried to deal more at the level of um, crime statistics uh, and also interviewing people responsible for the police and also trying to get a sense from some of the narrative cases that would come out 
about specific incidents about the degree of strategic control, which is again a really murky thing to be able to figure out. So, um, looking back to the, so I guess after your time, what year were you in East Timor? I was in there in two thousand. Oh, I was in two thousand five. Okay, so then it was afterwards that you were part of Obama's campaign as an advisor. Is that the case in two thousand seven uh, and eight? Yeah. So, and I was never part of the administration. I was only part of the the early uh, campaign structure, and I had a relatively modest role. So, I don't want to overstate overstate my importance in this. Um, what I did was I, after I finished my PhD, I spent a year as a postdoc, and then I took my first academic job in St. Andrews in Scotland. And then I uh, was invited to, through a couple of people I knew in D.C. to participate very early on uh, Senator Obama's campaign in 2007-2008. And I wound up working on some of the counterterrorism expert group practice uh, sort of policy documents that were there um, for about eight or nine months, but I never joined the administration. So mm -hmm. I was not, you know, I don't want to overstate my role here. I was one of the very large campaign structure. But nevertheless, did you have the opportunity to speak to Senator Obama at the time? Not directly. No, no, that, I was part of a very large, uh, structure mm -hmm. that was not, that was not, you don't directly talk to the candidate, not if you're as low down to the bulls I was. Still, it must be interesting to see a little bit how the cogs turn, uh, on that side of things. Um, but with with regards to uh, your work in uh, drone warfare, well, not that you manufacture drones or anything, but your research into drone warfare, uh, you know, this is a really, really complicated topic and you could really enter it from basically any direction. I thought what might be a good place to start with is just sort of outlining what's actually happening on the ground today. So, uh, you know, what are the numbers? What, what you know, how, how normalized uh, are these drone strikes becoming today? Yeah, so I, I would say that my work on, on sort of research work on counterterrorism and also my, my very limited time on the very early stages of the Obama campaign was one of the reasons that I, I got interested in the issue of drone warfare. Because by around 2007, 2008, we were seeing, um, you know, increasing use of drones for counterterrorism uh, in places like Pakistan and in Yemen and Somalia. Um, it was beginning to grow in sort of 2004, 2005, but it was still relatively low in 2008, 2009, and it really exploded during the Obama administration. Um, and, you know, one of the things that was part of the contemporary debate, both sort of on policy circles, but also on the academic side, was, you know, what's the best way to, uh, to deal with, you know, the problem of someone affiliated with a group like Al-Qaeda located in a state where you are not at war. If you are at war, right, if, you, if you're actively fighting on the ground, then there's a set of legal restrictions about what you can do, and it's a relatively clearly defined area of operations. But what do you do about a deterritorialized terrorist group that has actors located and actively plotting against the United States in countries where you're not at war. Um, and that's really where you started to see the increase in the use of drones for targeted killing and the increase in the use of drones uh, for warfare itself. And that was part of that debate in 2007, 2008. And it's how I kind of got interested in it, is really looking at it from a kind of counterterrorism vantage point. Um, I think we're very far beyond where that period of time had us. So that period of time had us uh, where drones were predominantly used for counterterrorism. The U.S. was expanding its fleet of Predator and then later Reaper drones. Um, those are largely for medium altitude, long endurance. In other words, you can fly them up to a thousand miles from the actual uh, point of their of their launch. So you could launch them from somewhere in theater. You could have them patrol over an area. You equip them with Hellfire missiles. And if you found someone that was on a kill list, for example, or if you found someone that was responsible for, uh, or at least allegedly plotting against the United States, that you could simply take them out. And the original impetus behind this was to say, 
you know, what if you saw Osama bin Laden, right? We go back to that period of time. And there were cases where the U.S. reported that they had, they thought they had seen Osama bin Laden in 2000, in 1999. They saw a tall man in white flowing robes. But the problem at the time was drones were not equipped with missiles. And they could only monitor and they could only capture video. So you would capture video, you would essentially convey the video, but you had to get another plane there in order to take the strike. And that took time. And that meant that it was an ineffective counterterrorism tool. By 2007, 2008, the problem of how you would fix a missile, specifically a Hellfire missile through a Reaper drone, had been resolved, and it was beginning to become as a kind of routine counterterrorism tool. And that's kind of how I got into looking at the problem of drones, which is to say, all right, now we have the ability to go into the sky and to strike at will, and we can do it in countries where we're not necessarily legally at war. Is that a good thing or not? How often should that be used? And you could make an argument that you would want to have the ability to do that for you know, a very high-ranking terrorist operative. Go back to the Osama bin Laden example. I think a lot of people would argue, well, if you had Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda in your sights, and you knew that he was actively plotting against the United States and other countries and was going to inflict harm on civilians, that you could make a case to say, well, taking out leaders is acceptable. But the question is, how far does that go? How much of a routine tool does that actually become? And so Building on some of the work that I did both academically on counterterrorism, some of the work that I had done in policy on counterterrorism, that was really the question about the engine drones. So I guess the ideal target would be someone like Osama. But um, in practice, who's, who, who are the targets and who's selecting them? So the U.S. approach is, is that the targets are generally people what they call al-Qaeda or associated forces. Uh, and that's an elastic term. So you know, clearly, if you think about someone like bin Laden, that's clearly al-Qaeda. If you had someone in part of the al-Qaeda leadership, that's clear. What got complicated and what got a bit messier under the Obama administration and has remained messy under the Trump administration has been, what do we mean by associated forces? So who's associated with al-Qaeda? Who's in their kind of milieu? And does that involve just people who are officially part of al-Qaeda or part of aligned militant groups? Because al-Qaeda has a web of alliances with other militant groups um, that are you know, in various degrees of operational sort of uh, effectiveness, but nonetheless, they are affiliated. So, for example, do you strike the Taliban? Do you strike the Pakistani branch of the Taliban? Do you strike the Haqqani network, which is targeting U.S. troops in Afghanistan? Do you start to attack uh, a group like Boko Haram in, in, you know, in Nigeria? Do you, or, you know, what do you do about Somalian groups, for example? Do you start to attack groups in Somalia? So we start to think about the, the groups that are affiliated with al-Qaeda, it's very large. Uh, and that also includes the Islamic State. You know, to what extent do we say the Islamic State is affiliated with al-Qaeda? Well, in many respects, it grew out of al-Qaeda in Iraq. But the Islamic State is off, uh, actually considers al-Qaeda part of its rivals. And so is it an associated force to a degree? To a degree, it's not. Um, and so when we think about who do we strike, the general answer that has been supplied by American administrations has been al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, and associated forces. But what we mean by that is a little bit unclear. It's also a little bit unclear about whether you are only striking leaders and you're striking people lower down the food chain. Because, you know, when we think about it, if you have someone like Bin Laden at the top of the organization, you make an argument, okay, well, that's a terrorist leader. But when you go lower and lower to the organization, the person who's supplying weapons, maybe the person who's driving the truck, you get some real questions about whether they're a legitimate combatant. And there are real legal and ethical questions about whether you should be able to target them. So one of the things that begins to happen a little bit with drone warfare has been that you have an expansion of the pool of potential targets. Uh, to not just al-Qaeda, but to a wider array of groups, and then lower down into the organization. So that, that's one question. In terms of who makes the decisions, you know, each national government is responsible for making the decisions. So much of the early work that I did, um, and I've done some more beyond this, but much of the early work I did was just on the United States. And that's a case under which the United States itself 
specifically within the executive branch, developed a kill list. That's the term they actually use, which is a very Orwellian term if you think about it, um, of people that they judged as eligible for being killed. Otherwise, in other terms, sometimes called a disposition matrix. Again, very okay. Orwellian. And the idea was that the executive branch would quite literally bring up candidates and say, okay, well, this person is part of Al-Qaeda. We think they're responsible for this attack. You know, do we have the right to kill them? There, a decision would be made, and then they would essentially go ahead and kill from entirely within the executive branch. No, nothing through the courts, no court cases, uh, and very little legislative oversight. Is this, is, it, is this list transparent, or is it sort of secret and on the side? Uh, it's, it's not transparent in the sense that, you know, there's no right for you or I to know who's on this list. Um, this is entirely done within the national security apparatus of the United States. The CIA maintains a list. The, joint, uh, the JSOC operates a list outside of the Pentagon. Both different organizations within the U.S. government had essentially different lists for a time. Uh, and they would nominate candidates. Um, and they would literally debate the candidates inside the national security bureaucracy of the United States, inside the CIA. It would go up to the president. Uh, it was reported in around 2012, 2013, that President Obama himself made the final decision on cases that came up, particularly if they were sort of high-profile cases he made up or controversial cases that were made up. He himself would make up the decision, and then he would give the, the authorization to kill this person. And once that happened, you would have what was essentially officially called a targeted killing, which is the killing of a terrorist operative outside an area of war. So it's very different if I'm fighting a war on the ground and I have you know legal rights to fight the war, but a targeted killing occurs when you know, you're in a country where the U.S. is not legally at war, but the U.S. says we are now going to take out this person, and if our drones find this person, we will kill this person. So where does that actually sit legally? I mean, I'm guessing these countries are not very happy with, with these attacks. Being... No, and that becomes one of the things that I got really interested in looking at. Aside from the fact that this is the dangers of this being located entirely within the executive branch, right? So the executive, the presidency essentially has the right, or people working for the president, essentially have the right to declare, okay, we're going to kill this person. That's itself an interesting problem. The legal piece from a domestic context, the legal piece that you get to with this is that, you know, states don't have the right to use force outside countries where they are formally at war. So if you have an actual declaration of war, then you're obliged to follow the laws of war, but you are allowed to use violence on the territory against people who are your enemy. So in this sense, you know, a drone strike in Afghanistan where the U.S. would be legally at war is not really that legally problematic. No one really disputes that. that the difference is whether you're using a drone or whether you're using a manned aircraft is essentially a matter of, of, of kind of tactical preference. It doesn't mean much. Where it gets more problematic legally is when you're not legally at war. So the United States is not legally at war in Pakistan. It's not legally at war in Yemen. It's not legally at war in Somalia. And yet during the Obama administration and then subsequently the Trump administration, there were targeted killings in all of those territories. Well, quite obviously, the local government's objected to this, right? Because you have essentially someone else flying drones on your territory. It's a little more complicated than this because there were objections made there is also a tacit recognition that this is being done with the blessing of the government. So, you know, in the case of Pakistan, for example, there were cases where Pakistan was formally protesting U.S. drone strikes, but allowing U.S. drones to take off from Pakistani airfields. Well, that, that's very clearly, they, they kind of wanted to both say, you know, go ahead and take this person out, but we want the right to protest later for political reasons. And so there's a little bit of sort of cynicism that goes on in, in some of this. But in terms of international law, most states around the world did not recognize the U.S.'s legal right to go ahead and kill people in other countries at will. Uh, you know, that is, and if you look at, for example, the U.N. statements on it, um, if you look at, at the judgment of international lawyers, for the most part, they argue the U.S. has no legal right to take these people out of these countries, that, that you should be only, do, only using this form of violence in countries where you're formally legally at war. Outside that, you have to rely on law enforcement or extradition. 
I hadn't really thought of the political manipulations going on in the background. So if you had an unstable state, it might be to your benefit to have the Americans come and drop some bombs on people and, and form an external enemy. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd not thought of that um, at all. In, in terms of... Um, Pakistan did that a lot. To, to, you know, Pakistan knew that the US was engaging in drone strikes. I mean, this was no mystery. There, there was, you know, it, at the high end of the US drone strike campaign, you know, we're talking about 100 strikes a year. 115, mm -hmm. 120 strikes a year. It's a strike every three days. There's no way Pakistan is not aware that every three days there's a bomb dropping from a U.S. drone on its territory. It absolutely do, and it let people take off from Pakistani airfields because if the U.S. is taking out enemies of the Pakistani government, that it's to their advantage, right? But at the same time, their population doesn't like the idea that the overweening Americans are using drone strikes on their territory, and so there's a very cynical game that goes on there where they formally condemn it and play to the crowd that says, well, of course this is terrible. And of course we object to the U S use of drone strikes in our territory. But when the U S was taking out people that they wanted taken out, there was a kind of wink and a nod of, well, thank you for doing that. Hmm. So in terms of uh, targets that are not supposed to be being hit. So when someone is killed, who's not a combatant, how, how, do, you, how do you define a combat combatant is, is a combatant anyone who's, killed in the target area or you know actually when the paper trail is following how do you define that it's a that's a really good question so you know when we're thinking about who defines a combatant the u.s has done a lot of work on this side to argue well who are they allowed to kill who are they not allowed to kill uh, officially the early iteration of this the obama administration said well if you were between the ages of 1875 and you were a male in the area where we were targeting we're going to presumptively assume you're a combatant unless posthumously we're given information that you're not so i assume that you're a combatant unless unless actually i'm not unless I get information later. The U.S. also engaged in what was called signature strikes, which is where they would attack someone based on a pattern of behavior rather than knowing their identity. So it wasn't that they would be able to say, well, this is, you know, this person responsible for this particular attack, but they would see them, for example, loading something into a truck or doing lo look like weapons training or preparing something that looked like an attack and a strike. Um, and so the U.S. always argued that it had higher levels of discrimination about who it targeted than its critics suggested. So if you were to talk to U.S. national security officials, for example, in the Obama administration, the answer was always there's this notion that we're just sort of recklessly killing people. We're not. We have a very sophisticated process inside the government to make sure the targets are legitimate. We have lawyers looking at it. We have ethical experts looking at it. And we will only get people who were involved in active hostilities against the United States by being part of a group like Al Qaeda that has declared war against the United States. The problem here at the core of it is that the evidentiary standard for a lot of this isn't clear. So because it was all conducted within the executive branch and it was all classified, the government wasn't really producing any evidence that said, well, this is why we targeted these 60 people in this country. We had evidence that these people were responsible for you know, being involved in Al-Qaeda, being involved in active plots. The, the problem that you had was the government was essentially collecting dossiers on people, convicting them more or less through a non-legal or non-judicial procedure inside the executive branch, carrying out an authorization of a targeted killing, killing that person, then later saying, trust us, we got it right. You know, trust us, this was a bad guy, we don't do this recklessly. Um, and the part of what got really tricky about this is when you start to look at civilian casualties, for example, there's no good official data on civilian casualties. The Obama administration would often say, and, and John Brennan, who was the one of the counterterrorism advisors for the Obama administration, was quoted as saying, it's in the single digits. That, that this, these weapons are so remarkably precise that we know so much more than we know about normal who we kill on a normal battlefield that, with drone because we can watch them for such a long period of time and there's such a dense kind of intelligence network behind the targeting that these things the number of civilian casualties are in the, is there in the single digits. 
The problem is external actors who also collected data on this found that it was much higher than that. Mm -hmm. And so- how, how, how does the comparison look by the numbers? Uh, I mean, the, the US numbers are, are, the US government's numbers are incredibly low. You know, I think that but my memory is correct. It's, they said something like it was a little over a hundred civilians they could confirm that they killed in all of their drone strikes up to 2016. Uh, that, that's just not plausible based on what we're seeing in a lot of the newspaper accounts. So my suspicion is, the, the truth is somewhere between what the U.S. government has estimated, but also not as high, perhaps, as the newspaper accounts. And the reason why the newspaper accounts are a problem is because we know that groups like, for example, the Taliban will spin stories about drone strikes on the ground. Oh, you know, this drone strike killed 30 people. Well, mm -hmm. the journalist will report that. That doesn't necessarily mean that that's true, because you know, groups like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda are perfectly well aware that playing up for propaganda purposes the costs of drone strikes it works to their advantage. So the truth is, it's probably somewhere between what the US government's kind of lowball estimate and the estimates that are produced by journalists' sources. But what the where that sits is very hard to tell. So what happens when someone who is not, you know, between 18 and 75 and male in the target zone is hit, you know, because there are cases that are admitted to being uh, mistakes. So who's responsible in that case? Is, is there any accountability or what, what happens there? There is an accountability. I think one of the things that would be unfair to say, and this is specifically talking about the US cases and drones in other countries operate differently and every country has their own procedures. But, you know, if we were thinking about the US, I do think the argument that the U.S. simply fires and forgets, that it just simply kills children, women and children on the territory, there's no evidence that that's true. What there is evidence is that when that happens, and there's clear evidence that a child was killed uh, or a non-combatant was killed, um, that there is a process inside the government to attribute responsibility. And there are cases where the U.S. has made condolence payments uh, and compensation payments to families that have been killed in drone strikes. Um, I think the issue here is that it's very hard for us to tell from the outside kind of what's the process inside that makes those judgments? We, we don't have information that they have. So, you know, what the U.S. is saying is, trust us, we know a lot. We have a lot more video footage than you do. We have a big intelligence network that's telling us things that you don't know. We're adjudicating this and we're being fair if we make a mistake and kill people. Um, hard to tell if that's actually in fact true. And, I, you know, I, I think it's also worth putting this, though, you know, as much criticism as the U.S. comes under, and I'm one of the people who's made criticisms of U.S. drone strike policy. As much criticism as the U.S. comes under, it's worth also thinking about this in contrast to normal war fighting. Right? If we were fighting a normal war without drones and without the ability to monitor for a long time, I would be dropping bombs from 30,000 feet. I wouldn't be seeing who's there. I probably wouldn't have as much information about the targets. And there are always cases where non-combatants are killed in wars. The question is, are whether drones are worse right, or better? Yeah. And, and the argument that is often made is actually this is the most precise form of warfare in human history, that the U.S. is being extraordinarily careful, that the idea that we're simply recklessly going around droning people is simply not true. That's possibly true. We don't have enough evidence to adjudicate whether that is actually true. The other question is whether it's leading you to do things you wouldn't ordinarily do. In other words, whether the drones are leading you to, to bomb more countries than you might otherwise bomb, to, to attack more militant networks than you might otherwise try to do if your own pilots are at risk. So I think you can sort of criticize it on two grounds. One, on the we don't really know what's happening on the battlefield ground. And secondly, on sort of what is this doing to your choices? That's something I really wanted to ask you about. I mean, if you're not seeing body bags coming home and you're sort of separating yourself from the victim, uh, at the same time. And I suppose if you don't have any boots on the ground, but you're just doing uh, drone strikes, then you're not embedding reporters either. Right. Uh, I wonder if there's this sort of uh, separation from the action that's incentivizing uh, more of this sort of action. 
Is that what seems to be the case? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. There's a lot of uh, debate of whether we're moving to a society that wants to kind of hide warfare, that we don't really want hmm. to uh, admit the cost of warfare. If we were to go back and think about, for example, the Second World War, it was very hard to hide the effects of the Second World War. People were being drafted. You saw the war wounded. Even in the Vietnam War, for example, the U.S. regularly reported the number that were killed every night. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the governments are casualty sensitive. And if governments are casualty sensitive and sensitive towards imposing the cost of a war on its population, and it's worth thinking that the U.S. essentially more or less ran the entire Iraq and Afghanistan war through supplemental appropriations designed not to raise taxes, right? Essentially, to say to people, your taxes aren't going to go up and you're not gonna, your, your children are not going to get drafted. So we're going to try and essentially wage this war. We're going to do it in another country. It doesn't really affect your day-to-day -day life. It's essentially the way we fought wars in the last 20 to 30 years. And drones, in a sense, are a natural evolution to this. We don't put a pilot at risk. We have a very high information-rich warfare, and we're able to essentially conduct um, very low-level violence to keep taking out our enemies abroad without actually transferring the cost of the population or even making the population largely aware of it. And so, you know, when you see the drone strikes, for example, um, they're a very small story in the newspaper. Most people don't pay attention to the fact that the U.S. was dropping a bomb every three days in Pakistan. Most people wouldn't have been aware of that in 2010, 2011. And similarly, the Trump administration has shifted towards much more drone use uh, in Somalia, for example. So we've seen you know, the theater of drone operations shift under Trump towards Somalia and to a lesser degree towards Yemen. And we've seen you know, the U.S. be involved in, in drone overflights in Libya and places like that very little discussion in the American domestic context. Why? Because you've been able to sort of remove that from our day-to-day -day life. And that's what drones represent another step of, of countries trying to do so, in part because there's a concern about you know, how casualty sensitive uh, are democratic publics and how much do they really want to pay the cost of war. If we actually saw what we were doing and were aware of paying the cost of it, would we be um, more, more reluctant to do it? I'm still quite surprised at how quiet we are on this issue, though. I mean, if you remember back a few, I think it was in uh, four or five years ago in Dallas, the police used a drone to kill a gunman. Mm -hmm. And that was in the news for one day and then disappeared. Do you remember the case that there was a mass shooting of well, someone ran over a policeman or something like this? Mm -hmm. And that was in the news for one day and just disappeared. It, it, uh, but it, it's a huge thing, really. To, it's a big step in, in, in it's a big change in how you actually operate. On the ground. Oh, absolutely. And I think one of the stories that I try and draw out in the book that I published on this is the degree to which drones are beginning to enable surveillance in the United States and in other countries as well. I focus more on the United States as an American, but there's there's accounts in other countries as well that has become rapidly normalized. I mean, if you were to go back and say that we would have had the FBI doing overflights or Customs and Border Patrol doing overflights over the border 15 to 20 years ago, it would raise eyebrows. Now, today, people sort of accept drones are operating for surveillance purposes. Uh, certainly the US is engaging in vast military surveillance is collecting a tremendous amount of data in other theaters around the world. But inside the domestic United States, we've seen drones spread like wildfire through police forces. And there's a lot of good reasons why local police forces for, would wanna have a drone, right? Uh, if you think about someone who, let's say a child gets lost in a forest, well, I would want to be able to throw a drone up and be able to find a lost child. Uh, and there are cases in hostage situations where you know, someone might have a gun in the building and you're sending the drone around the building to be able to see the person in the building. Well, the quite obvious reasons why you'd want to have a drone. So I'm not in any way suggesting all these drones are terrible and that we're moving to some sort of dystopian future. There are reasons for law enforcement to have drones, but it has become kind of normalized and it has become something that we pay much less attention to. And certainly one of the things that it's doing is the more that you're able to see from the sky, the more you're amplifying the course of power of the state. 
right? the more the state can watch you, monitor you, and in some cases coerce you. And that's something that I think is worth thinking about. We've kind of not paid attention to the degree to which drones become normalized, certainly in domestic context, but also in the international context. In terms of the in incentive structures behind uh, drone strikes themselves, are there political motivations that are somehow less obvious that, that I'm, you know, are there, are there some other less obvious uh, incentives that I'm not seeing on the political side? So one of the less obvious incentives in this um, is about whether how difficult it is to prosecute someone. And this is something that if, you, if you're thinking about counterterrorism, it's something that always sort of surprises people who don't work in counterterrorism. But if you go back to the early stages of the US war on terror in 2001, 2002, 2003, the Bush administration scooped up a lot of people that they were uh, claimed to be associated with groups like Al Qaeda and threw them into you know, Guantanamo Bay as an example. And the problem that you have there is that it is remarkably difficult to prosecute someone for counterterrorism offenses. First, if the evidence that you have is often classified. So, you know, I may have information that you're responsible or part of a terrorist group, but I can't reveal classified information in a court proceeding. I also, in some cases, am getting information through sources and methods that I would rather not reveal. I might also get intelligence from a foreign government. And it often happens that foreign governments share, and there are real restrictions on their ability to share. There's also a question about whether you would get a conviction and whether the standard of activity that you see is enough to get a conviction in a, in a civilian court. So, you know, maybe you are responsible for loading bombs onto a truck. I might not get that conviction in a civilian court if it doesn't meet the standard of evidence or the standard of uh, proof that is required to get the conviction. And so convictions in a civilian court for counterterrorism offenses are not that easy to get sometimes, depending, especially if some of the evidence is secret. And this is why the U.S. spent a number of years setting up military tribunals in Guantanamo Bay in order to do a kind of ju judicial due process, but to pay attention to classified evidence and to pay attention to the sensitivities of dumping this information out in the public domain. All of this suggests that one of the reasons why drone strikes happen is because sometimes it's harder to arrest people than to kill them. It's counterintuitive, but if you think about it, if someone is an Al-Qaeda operative in Yemen, and you're telling me that the option is I have to go in with special forces into a country that I don't have air overflow, overflight rights in, or have very limited overflight rights in, take the physical risk involved in capturing this person, get this person to a jail, then I have to bring the lawyers in, then I have to present evidence, then I have to somehow get a conviction, and then I have to figure out where I'm going to put this person in jail, because especially in the U.S., we have a case where people don't want them in the conventional jails, right? So, so members of Congress will turn around and say, I don't want terrorists in my jail in Milwaukee, you know, get, get them out. That's an enormous legal and political problem. And this is one of the arguments that is made as to why the U.S. began to rely on drone strikes. If you're in the Obama administration and later in the Trump administration, you have a much bigger problem arresting people. You face a much greater risk your own people will be killed. You have a set of legal problems, a set of political problems. If you use a drone and simply eliminate them, problem solved. So it's the easy option by several orders of magnitude, and that in itself is a problem. So it, it, in terms of uh, through the Obama administration then Trump, is it just the numbers that have changed, or is there also a qualitative uh, change that's happened as well? So through, I think one of the things that I, I am concerned about is under the Trump administration, um, there's been comparatively less attention paid to this. And I think it's partially because of the, the, the amount of the scandals in the Trump administration, as well as the sort of coronavirus pandemic, you're going to see there's less attention paid to drone strikes. So if we look at patterns of drone strikes that were in the United States, at least, and again, I'm speaking entirely of US-based targeted killings, um, you know, you start to see the high point in around 2011, 2012. And then in May 2013, President Obama 
released a, a do policy document that was essentially tightening the standards for civilian casualties. He more or less said, I want to have a 99% sense of certainty of civilian casualties. And he also implemented a series of reporting standards designed to clean up the process by which drone strikes were done inside the US government. And that had a real impact. From May 2013 to 2016, you see drone strikes level off and drop to a very small number. And so essentially the US goes from using the tool very, uh, very commonly in a number of different theaters in 2010, 2011, 2012, by 2013 to 2016, they become much more selective in the use of it. And that's one of the reasons why drone strikes sort of fell off and people paying attention to it. You know, if, if you start to use it much more selectively, people are naturally going to see less controversy associated with it. The problem that we have is because, as I said, the entire infrastructure built around drone strikes is located within the executive branch, that was then handed over to Donald Trump. And one of the immediate concerns is what would Donald Trump do? Now, the Trump administration was interesting in one respect, which is that it said very little about drones. I mean, even on the campaign trail, the closest you can come to Donald Trump talking about drones is to say something like, you know, well, we're going to kick the hell out of ISIS. It's not really clear what that means. In practice, what actually happened were a couple things. The first was that they ripped up the guidance that said you have to have a very high threshold of certainty that there's no civilian casualties coming. And so the military, this is what Trump meant by, I'm going to unleash the military. I'm no longer going to tie their hands. I mean, the overarching argument of the Republicans under the Trump administration was that the Obama administration had lawyered everything to death and had then tied the hands of the military with a whole series of, of, of legal restrictions. Trump administration said, we're going to rip this up. And so they ripped that up. Then he took all of the reporting requirements that President Obama had implemented and were finally coming to sort of fruition in 2015, 2016, and threw them out. So there are no more reporting requirements about civilian casualties. Um, mm -hmm. So that meant that the process went further into the shadows. And then the theater of war shifted in part away from Pakistan. So significantly less drone strikes under Trump on, on Pakistan, more drone strikes in Somalia. Uh, and this was in part because... You know, a couple different reasons. One is the theater of conflict and theater of operation shifted. So, so what you start to see drone strikes moving much more towards sort of North Africa and moving away from Pakistan, and partially also because the U.S. was involved in a peace process in Afghanistan. And drone strikes in Pakistan are directly related to that because what they were using for the drone strikes in Pakistan was not just Al Qaeda, but was forces affiliated with the Taliban in Afghanistan. And so in part because of the peace process, in part because of changes in the dynamics of the fighting itself, and in part because the sort of the locus of the threat shifted much more towards places like Yemen and Somalia, you started to see drone strikes in different areas than you did under the Obama administration. I think the chief problem here is that we have absolutely no idea what the Trump administration really did with drone strikes. There's no disclosure at all. So there's no data at all that was produced. If you ask, you know, can you give me an absolute number of the number of drone strikes that the Trump administration launched? Not really. You can find public accounting of this, or independent groups that have collected data on it, but nothing verified by the government. And no way for us to tell that the independent data is correct. Can you find uh, sort of uh, records on ordnance usage or? You can. It's, this is one of the things that makes it very tricky at the moment. So the question is how data on drones are reported. So the Air Force, um, the US Air Force, for example, in Afghanistan, Draw, reports data on ordnance and reports data on flights, but not whether they are manned flights or drone flights. Right. So sometimes what you get that comes out of the U.S. military bureaucracy is a very large aggregate amount of data that is hard for you to tell how much it's drones, how much it's manned airstrikes. Now, the argument in favor of this is to say, does it really matter whether it's drones or, or, or airstrikes? Because if we're talking about something that's used in a... Um, 
and we're talking about something that's used in Afghanistan, again, if you're legally at war, it doesn't really matter whether it's someone in the plane or someone in a drone. When you're talking outside those theaters where the data is much more scarce, it might matter, right? It, that might be important. Do you have any, or, or is there any uh, policy projection uh, for the Biden administration? The Biden administration has, again, seen very, very little. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me, at least, is that drones have become so normalized that we have, we've almost, in a sense, stopped talking about them. We treat them as, well, of course, there'll be drone strikes. Um, they've said relatively little about it. They've had no official policy statement, nothing that I have seen that has talked about drones. My suspicion is that they will revert to the the second half of the Obama administration's, the second term Obama administration's policy. They'll re-implement most of the guidelines that were put in place, which will basically mean that the U.S. continues to engage in drone strikes, but it does so much more selectively uh, and, and probably with a higher set of standard of evidence and a higher degree of certainty against civilian casualties. Now, you can argue... You know, is that an improvement? Certainly over the Trump administration, I'd be much more worried about you know, ripping up the standards on civilian casualties and pushing it all into the shadows than I would about having very high standards on civilian casualties and making sure that it's, it's being done to so relatively high standard, um, but it's still going to continue as a practice. I mean, the, the practice of targeted killing is something that the U.S. is not going to give up. And I think at this point, if we're talking about nearly 20 years of it, I don't see a situation where the U.S. says, you know, oh, we're going to put that genie back in the bottle. We're, we're no longer going to engage in targeted killings. We're probably going to live in a world under which more and more governments do it. And we have evidence that that's already happening. That other governments have said, well, if the U.S. Is, can do targeted killing, why can't we? Uh, that's something I wanted to ask you about in a second. But before jumping into that uh, can of worms, I wanted to ask a little bit about um, just on the human side of things. Uh, are the pilots who are piloting these drones uh, getting PTSD and things like this, or or are they sort of separated enough that this isn't uh, an issue for them? It's a really good question. So there's a lot of um, debate over this question. Uh, there are some studies that suggest that pilots get PTSD at a greater level than other pilots do, drone pilots do. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the argument for this is that you know, if you think about um, the way that drone strikes occur, especially in the U.S. context, the pilots might be following the targets for days on end. And you get a degree of intimacy and familiarity with it. So there are drone pilots who report saying, well, you know, I see the, the guy kiss his kids in the morning and, and get his morning breakfast. And then I have to go kill them two hours later. Now, you put that in contrast to someone who's flying 30,000 feet up who presses a button and drops a bomb and never sees the person on the ground. The other thing is that the U.S. drone pilots are also required to stay around the area of the strike. So this isn't a case under which you simply drop a bomb and then the drone flies away. In fact, actually, the drones tend to circle over the strike, see who comes to the strike. They see the ambulance pick up the person. They might see the person bleed out. They might see the person in a lot of pain. They might see the person's family come to the site where they were struck. That is, you see some pretty horrible things as associated with it. And so there are some studies that suggest that well, drone pilots themselves actually have a higher rate of PTSD. There's long hours of boredom where you're simply watching things on the ground, and then you're asked to commit violence, and you see quite intimately the suffering that goes on that's associated with it. And there are drone pilots that have come out and said, you know, I have to dissent from this kind of warfare and this, this, this kind of military practice because I've seen the effect of this up front, and it's kind of horrifying. And I guess then after they pull the trigger and they loiter for two hours, then that night they drive home to their own families, kiss their own kids mm -hmm. goodnight. And that would mess with you a lot, I, I imagine. It does. There, and there's people who say, you know, it's very difficult to kill someone in the afternoon and then go to your kid's soccer game. 
that there's a sort of degree of dislocation that's associated with it. And it's something that if you think about it in nature of warfare, it's a really unusual thing. I mean, normally when we're used to the idea of sending someone to war, we send them to war and we expect that they're there fighting for six months or a year or two years. And they're in a specific context with the surrounded by people who are fighting all the time and their entire sort of social world is dominated by that. We're not used to sending people to war for eight hour shifts and sending them home. Uh, and, you know, there is some evidence to suggest that, that that really does get to people. And the military spent a bit of time trying to work out how do we provide sort of emotional support, mental health support, and make sure that people are not suffering from a degree of trauma associated with engaging in this kind of violence. It's definitely something about the dislocation of it. People also argue, you know, there's a video game aspect to this where you become desensitized to it. And in fact, you're actually indifferent to the casualties. And there's less and less evidence that that's true. In fact, actually, more people say, no, it's quite the opposite. I'm following this. I know that I'm responsible for this activity. I'm going to make sure that it's lawful. I'm going to make sure that it's careful. So I think when we think about it, there's a sort of stereotype that this is video game warfare. I think that that's probably a stereotype that doesn't work. It's actually much more complicated than that. People are, are being monitored themselves. That's one of the things drone pilots tell you when they when they're, speak to them. And I did a bunch of interviews as part of the work that I did on this. They say that, you know, people always think that we're just recklessly killing people, but in fact, actually, our activities are being monitored by other people who are watching our video screen. If I go do something on the video screen that I'm not supposed to do, everyone sees it. So you're not reckless. In fact, you're being monitored and you're monitoring the ground. You have long hours of exhaustion and then short moments of horror. And uh, so this might actually be the first time in history that combatants watch the other combatants' lives. I mean, individually. Even if you think back to when we were fighting with swords and shields, you would have formed up in lines or however it was done back then, but you never would have seen the personal lives of uh, your enemies. It's... Yeah, and when we think about whether this has an impact on it, you know, a lot of what training is designed to do, or at least some forms of military training are designed to do, is to depersonalize the enemy so it make it easier to kill. By recognize you as a person with similar needs and similar and similar experiences and simpler, similar desires to me, it might be harder for me to kill you. And so a lot of what we think about with warfare is about trying to demonize the enemy so that we know that we have to kill them. And a lot of training is about so that you don't flinch at that moment, right? And then the military is even in the conventional way, you're in a high stress, highly dangerous environment. You cannot have people who are, are in a trench line shooting at someone who's coming at them and stop and say, well, should I shoot that person? Is that a person like me? You have to sense they have to be willing to pull the trigger. So a lot of military discipline is about getting over our natural reluctance to kill. And there is some evidence to suggest that, um, when people see their enemy humanized in some way, they won't do it. So you can find lots of anecdotal accounts and historical accounts of people saying, um, I was about to come on this group of soldiers and I stopped and I saw this person taking a bath and I just mm -hmm. couldn't bring myself to shoot them when they were in that vulnerable state. Uh, mm -hmm. There's lots of cases under which when you begin to recognize the common humanity of the person on the other side, that it somehow becomes more difficult to kill rather than easier. So do you think uh, before artificial intelligence comes in, this could actually be an aspect which limits the violence? As in, uh, this could be a positive side, potentially, of, of drones being used? Um, I mean, I think you could see, I think the bigger issue, you know, the, it would matter much more, that humanization would matter much more if the pilots, I think, had a lot of discretion. In a sense, like if they were sitting there making the decisions about I'm going to kill this person, I'm not going to kill this person. But it, it doesn't really work that way because it's a bureaucratic and political process behind them while leaders are making decisions. And because they're engaging in a kind of rule governed process, whether they are humanized, they see the sort of humanity of their target in a sense is beside the point. They have a job to do and they have to do the job that they've been asked to do. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I see. I think it would matter much more if they were making discretionary choices. But in many cases, they're, they're being asked to do a fairly rule governed test.
test. Okay, so what about the other side then? If, if you're someone living in one of these uh, zones that's being targeted, what, what's happening to the, I guess, the civilians that are on the ground? What, what's the impact uh, there in terms of PTSD and, and other uh, impacts? It's a great question. So there's a lot of debate over um, what is the impact of drones on the lives of civilians. So you can find there was a Stanford NYU report that came out that talked about the kind of terror of living under um, drones that people in environments in, for example, the Fatah in Pakistan, you know, they're looking up and they're hearing a drone above them. They live in constant anticipatory anxiety that the drone is going to strike them, that they're afraid to send children to school. They might be afraid to, afraid to attend a funeral and that it's projecting fear onto the population. Uh, and some, some very early work on this said, you know, drones have an enormous psychological consequence on people on the ground. Now, the problem is it's very difficult to measure that, right? We can think about this from a social, social scientific vantage point. Getting reliable data on this is not that easy to do. Sometimes you can't get public opinion data. It's hard to interview people. There's all sorts of reasons why they would overrepresent some views or underrepresent some views. So getting good data on what people really think about drones is not easy to do. Um, some of the studies that have gotten data on that have said that it's a bit more mixed picture. Um, because on the one hand, you know, there's the anticipatory anxiety of U.S. drones. They're flying over, over. There's also the sense that you're powerless under another country's, you know, aircraft that wants to that has the ability to strike you on the other hand if they're taking out if the u.s is taking out um terrorists in your neighborhood that have been terrorizing you and have maybe been harming you harming your family you know shaking you down for protection money or so on that you might actually be relieved and so mm -hmm. the public opinion data is a little bit mixed on this. There have been studies that have said, no, this really does have a kind of negative psychological impact on people on the ground. And we have to be careful about whether this is producing fear and changing patterns of behavior. Others have argued and said, actually, no, that, that there is some evidence where if, the, if they're certain the drones are taking out bad guys, in a sense, they're relieved, right? Uh, and there's also variations based on all of the things that you would expect. So you know, we find that, for example, urban populations have different views on it than rural populations. And, How does that break down? Um, so I've seen different different reports on this. One report on this is says, you know, urban elites with lots of information are sometimes more relieved that it's happening, right? Where where than you would think. Others have argued that that in fact actually it cuts the opposite way. <laughs> that urban elites. So there's been different studies that have cut this. So uh, the other thing I wanted to ask about is, um, you know, at a strategic level, is is the United States opening itself up to new forms of aggression from uh, foreign actors? Yes. Yeah, so one of the things that is true generally about drone strikes is that, you know, we've talked a lot about the U.S. context of this where the U.S. had exclusive um, rights on drones and had, or had sort of a, a lead on drones. Not exclusive rights, it's the wrong way to phrase it, but it had a, a technological and political lead on drones that allowed it to do a lot more than other countries would do. That's changing. I mean, that, that era that we lived in from 2000 to 2010, that's completely gone. What we're seeing now is a case under which um, many other countries have their own drones capabilities and they're able to engage in the same kind of strikes. Now, interestingly, they're not generally doing it the way the U.S. has done it. So we're not okay. seeing a lot of targeted killings emerge. You have seen targeted killings in Pakistan, for example, and Nigeria and Iraq. All three of those governments have engaged in targeted killings and cited the American example. Israel has also engaged in targeted killings. But when we think about other countries, China's developed a very substantial drone fleet. Russia's developed a very substantial drone fleet. And they're beginning to use it in very different ways than the U.S. has used it. So the initial advantage that the U.S. had in drones, that it was the sole person, sole country that had an enormous fleet of drones and that it had just such an incredible lead in the technology, that's, that's is shrinking. 
as more and more mm-hmm. countries have it. Is it still in the lead or? It's still in the lead. I mean, I, the U.S. still has more drones and it has, you know, I would argue, you know, better quality drones than a lot of its mm-hmm. competitors. But a lot of. But more expensive, I suppose. Much more expensive. And this is why the U.S. tends to export less. Um, the U.S. tends to export a lot less than other countries. Um uh, are they allowed? Uh, do they restrict their uh, exports for other reasons, as in security reasons? Yeah, the U.S. actually has fairly restrictive uh, export rules on what, what it will sell, te- sell drone technology. You would think that it would be with the largest market and the, the size of the American defense industry that it would be selling drones constantly. But in fact, that's actually not true. Um, that what it generally has done is sold to NATO allies uh, and it mm-hmm. has sold to very close military allies. But it is very reluctant to transfer the technology outside of that pool. Uh, and the U.S. under the Obama administration had fairly high export restrictions, first partially because it was covered under a number of export control regimes, but partially also for concerns over human rights. The idea is that they didn't mm-hmm. want to transfer drone technologies to countries that might abuse human rights. And so the U.S. has, very, I know, which is ironic in some way, right? Yeah. The U.S. is engaging in targeted killing in, in and getting attacked on its own human rights record while at the same time being careful about exporting the technology so that other people can do it. Um, but what in practice that did was it left a space for other countries to fill the export mm-hmm. market. Uh, and so one of the biggest exporters in the world is Israel. Israel will export to a lot of different countries. China has also jumped into that market and now increasingly Turkey has jumped into that market. And so those are really the biggest exporters in the world. And a lot of those countries have taken advantage of the demand that exists from countries that cannot get it from the US. Mm-hmm. You, you mentioned that there are different use cases now coming from Turkey and these various other powers. How does that look? So they're actually doing very, very different kinds of drones than the U.S. is used to. So when we go back and think about our model and the way we've talked about drones for the last bunch of years, mm-hmm. it's very much focused on targeted killing. It's very much focused on predator and reaper drones. Uh, it's very much focused on the sort of um, high-end military drones. What we've seen both from China and from Turkey has been selling uh, lower altitude drones that are designed to enable ground warfare. And so we've seen drones that are used for um, target spotting, for example, to get other countries, other governments or other enemies to reveal their positions or just for intelligence practices. I mean, a lot of drones, we talk a lot about targeted killing, but a lot of drone usage is just for intelligence, reconnaissance and surveillance. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has been a big change in the way that that combat has begun to emerge, as we've seen in in the Gorda Karabakh. We've seen Turkish drones being used by our, by Azerbaijan to target Armenian tanks and provide a really decisive edge on the battlefield. And that, so what was the difference there in that conflict? Uh, why, why was it so dis- decisive in this case? So in that particular case, Turkey first, Turkey has, has, has a very good drone export program. It can sell quite a few, has a, quite a wide range of models. And it transferred a lot of its models to, Azer- to Azerbaijan with support of the government. So the Turkish government was more or less supporting Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan then very effectively used their drones to get into the sky and to spot Armenian tanks. And also then to get Armenian forces to reveal their positions. So you fly mm-hmm. the drone in the air, someone would take a shot at the drone and it would reveal their positions. And they were able to use it to wipe out a lot of Armenian ground forces, including using loitering munitions, which are basically when the drone has a grenade and drops it on a trench, for example, where people are located. They were able to do that very effectively. And so Armenia had real serious battlefield losses as a combination of both ground force units from Azerbaijan and Turkish drones in the sky, both from loitering munitions, but also just regular drones that are designed to get them to to sort of appear in public, spot their targets or whatever. That really played a very decisive battle in rolling back a lot of Armenia's territorial advantages and inflicting such losses that eventually they sued for peace. 
And that's why that's drawn so much attention, because those drones that were being used by Azerbaijan are not anywhere as sophisticated as the Reaper drones that the U.S. were using. I mean, they were much smaller, much more cost efficient, much more able to be deployed on a battlefield context, and they were hugely effective. And we've... But they were a step up from what was being used in uh, Syria by ISIS, right? Yeah, so what's being used by ISIS in Syria are largely the commercial drones. ISIS has actually specialized very much in retrofitting commercial drones with munitions or grenades or so on. And they've been able to do that in order to essentially drop bombs from the sky, right? And, and to put pressure on U.S. forces from the sky. That is different than what is happening here. So I would say if you're thinking about this in kind of tiering of the system, the commercial drones are at one level, the next level up would be what Turkey was selling Azerbaijan, which is integrated with ground units. And that's been very effective. And those sort of um, small drones that are tactical use drones have been used in Libya, they've been used in Syria, and they've now been used in the in Azerbaijan-Armenia war. And I think we're going to start to see that level of drone usage, that sort of small drone usage in order to kind of, in a sense, turbocharge your effectiveness on the battlefield become more and more common in the future. Is the technology mainly restricted to aerial combat or are we also seeing ground-based and I guess submarines and oh, things yeah. like this? Come yeah, no, I mean, unman unmanned technology, the term unmanned technology is moving to a lot of different theaters. Um, and so we're starting to see ground-based are already ground-based autonomous or, or unmanned, not autonomous, unmanned robots. Uh, that are designed to conduct tasks. They've moved relatively slowly. Russia's invested more money on them mm -hmm. than a lot of other countries. Uh, where you're really starting to see the explosion of unmanned technologies under the water, uh, particularly for mm -hmm. subs, uh, for looking for mines, for example, but also conducting okay. surveillance. Um, and you know, it makes a lot of sense. If I was going to have a submarine under the under the water that was trying to detect someone's defenses, for example, I wouldn't want to risk people in it. So if I can do that with an unmanned sub, that, that's a great thing. And both the U.S. and China are investing a lot in that. So I would expect the drone war to essentially move to the seas first rather than on land. On land, there are a lot of obstacles about just getting them to move as effectively as they should uh, and to enable it. You're also going to start to see drones much, much more being used on the battlefield purposes. I mean, again, we're much more used to the U.S. high-level, very expensive, you know, 15,000 feet up style drones. You're going to start seeing many, many more drones being used for technical use on the battlefield that's beginning to enable people to fight. So are we in a new arms race, essentially? Yeah, I would argue that we are. I mean, I've written a piece on this that talks a little bit about the race for drones. You know, mm -hmm. in a sense, it's hard to to judge it because a lot of countries around the world want to build a drone fleet, even if what they want to build when they build a drone fleet um, is a kind of boutique or or symbolic fleet. So, you know, if we go back and look at the number of countries around the world that have drones, it, it's over a hundred countries in the world have drones. Many of their drone fleets are relatively small symbolic fleets. They have some that they can fly. They want to show that they can do it. But you are seeing a race in drone capabilities, and you are seeing where more and more countries are trying to get the ability to sort of help their ground forces in the way that we've seen in the Azerbaijan case, or to be able to just engage in, for example, in loitering munitions. So you are starting to see a race around the world for drone technology. And, and certainly as the floodgates have opened for both China uh, and Turkey and to a lesser extent Israel selling to more and more actors, plus the U.S. market exporting as well, we're going to start to see more and more of a kind of race for drones and drones capabilities be part of the kind of great powers race you see among states. One thing I wanted to ask about is um, traceability. You know, before, if you shot down a aircraft and the pilot came down, you'd have the pilot and you could say that's an American pilot. But now you could have a drone that's really doesn't carry any flag. Are we seeing this sort of thing happening or? Yeah, so plausible deniability is a big problem for drones. I mean, obviously, if it's a relatively large drone, you know who it is, right? If it's, it, it, you can sometimes trace it. 
Um, and so there are cases under which you know, if you shoot down an American Global Hawk drone, it, it's not going to be hard for you to figure out that's an American Global Hawk drone. Um, where you are getting in cases of this is where you're having very small mobile drones that are used to enable an attack. So you go back to the Saudi Aramco attack, where it was alleged that Houthi rebels from Iran launched an attack on Saudi oil facilities, knocked out 5% of the oil supply. Well, that was a combined drone and also cruise missile attack. And that's an interesting case where essentially the attack happened. Houthi rebels that were based in Yemen claimed responsibility for it. And it later came out that Iran had supplied drones and that Iran had coordinated and been responsible for launching the attack. And that's a case under which we can see how people can engage in kind of plausible deniability. Was it my drone? Was it responsible for doing so? Or look, you, know, you can't really prove it's mine, can you? So bigger end drones, higher end drones, high altitude drones, very hard for you to obscure who's responsible for them. The smaller and smaller your drone, certainly the closer they are to the commercial market, the more you have the opportunity for plausible deniability. Uh, and there are still cases under which there are drone attacks that we're really not sure who was responsible for them. There was a case in Syria where Russian forces reported being attacked by a drone swarm. And they, you know, they alleged a number of different parties that they thought were responsible, particularly local groups on the ground. They denied responsibility for it. There were allegations that it was coordinated by Turkey or allegations it was coordinated by another government. Again, not clear what, what actually happened there. But we're starting to see a much more murkiness around attribution of drones. The smaller and smaller they are, and the bigger they get, mm -hmm. the more and more they get in people's hands. Do you think that's the direction that this technology is going to be pushed uh, towards? Smaller and, and, and swarms rather than the big Global Hawk? Yeah, the Global if you start to think about something like a Global Hawk, which works like a U-2 aircraft, it's just too expensive and it's just too high capability mm -hmm. to be used by the vast number of actors. There's a smaller number, small number of governments in the world that A, could afford it, and B, have a reason to afford something on that end. So there's a kind of high-level drone competition that you're going to start to see uh, among countries like the United States and China. But for the much of the rest of the world, drones are going to get smaller, they're going to get more mobile, they're going to get more adaptable, and they're going to enable ground forces. And so as they get into more and more people's hands, you see the technology shrink. And even to the point where the U.S. is starting to say they're not sure how much value they have in their traditional medium altitude drones. So when we think about targeted killing, for example, you know, a lot of the attention was spent on Predator and Reaper drones. The Predator's already retired. The U.S. is considering retiring large numbers of the Reaper drones because that's less valuable to them than battlefield drones or the kind of high-end surveillance drones. So I would say the market's kind of bifurcating in a sense, but much, much more of the explosion will be in small mobile drones. Mm -hmm. And what about countermeasures? Is that also a huge market? That's a massive market and it's a really difficult problem. So if you think about counter drone technology, seems fairly obvious. What do you want to do? You want to knock the drone out of the sky, but it's actually not as obvious as you think. So you can try geofencing, you know, in other words, programming into the hardware of the drone or the software of the drones, where it can go. So in the US, um, there, if you try to fly a drone into a nuclear facility or you try and fly a drone into the White House, it's not going to work. I won't. Yeah, it won't work. Um, there was famously a case, uh, I can't remember how many years ago, maybe five or six years ago, where um, someone bought a drone. They lived not too far from the White House. Uh, they may have drank too much that night. The drone flew out the window and landed on the White House lawn, and they woke up that morning with the security services standing at their door saying, what did you do? That's impossible now. If you try to program a drone to fly into the White House, it's not going to happen. And so geofencing is one way that you can stop it. But geofencing can ultimately be hacked. I mean, if you're, if you're, if you're capable enough, you can do that. So, so has the law moved quickly on that on the domestic side? Yes, the law has moved very quickly on, on to enable that. And a number of the companies have tried to engage and authorize geofencing because they recognize they're not going to be able to sell to a domestic market. So if you're a company like DJI, which is one of the biggest drone exporters in the world, they know they're not going to be able to sell in the United States if they can program a drone to fly into the White House.
or into a nuclear mm -hmm. facility. So they'll build that into the firmware of the drone to make it very hard for you to be able to do so. Now, obviously, you know, if you're someone with more technological skills than I have, you could probably hack into that and, and change that. Mm -hmm. The other question is, can you knock it down? And there's a whole bunch of different types of technology that are able to knock down or disable drones from the sky. But one of the interesting problems from this is first, you know, how do you disable from the sky without harming anybody? If I just knock it down and it falls down and it harms somebody, I'm responsible. So this is actually a much larger question. There's a big question about can we somehow ease it down? Can I capture control of it? Can I neutralize it from the air? Um, how do I find ways to disable drones without producing harm? And until fairly recently, I think about a year or two ago, there were legal restrictions on the ability of U.S. law enforcement to shoot things down in the air. So in the U.S. context, you know, you are not allowed to just shoot an aircraft down. That's under the control of federal airspace, and it's a crime to shoot an aircraft down. Well, because of the way drones were being classified, it was a crime to shoot a drone down. So you had the bizarre position where police officers were saying, I don't know if I have the legal right to shoot that drone down. Now that's yeah. been clarified. The federal government has articulated that if you have law enforcement responsibilities, you can shoot the drone down. But, I suppose the size of the drone also matters, right? That's right. Yeah, the size of the drone. I mean, if we're talking about a small commercial drone, the kind that you would buy at a normal electronics store, that's that's one thing. If you're talking about a much more sophisticated drone, um, you know, sort of military edge drone, it's going to be much harder to do. But there's an enormous market for counter drone technology and find ways to disable these drones and bring them down relatively safely. And this is particularly a concern for governments because we're starting to see the first kind of um, glimmer of drone-based assassinations. So we've started okay. to see cases under which, for example, Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro, there was an attempted assassination attempt with him with drones, where drones were packed with explosives and flown very quickly to him as he was standing on a, on a platform. I suppose there was this Iranian general as well. That's right. Now, that's a case under which I would argue that's a little bit different in the sense that that was a U.S. authorized strike. So that's a U.S. military conducted strike. Now, you could make an argument, and I, I have made this argument in a different context, that it's dangerous to do that. That if we start getting into the world where, well, I take out your bad guy and I take out your military general and you take out my chief of intelligence or something, that's not the world that you want to live in. So there's a normative argument to not do that. Um, and that's why most people who study this said that, you know, the attack on Soleimani, for example, was uh, an unnecessarily provocative attack that was going to lead to consequential attacks down the line. So there's that question. That's a military base of assassination. And that is something that, again, is showing the kind of norms are slipping. Like, Traditionally, it's illegal under international law to assassinate people. We then created a category called targeted killing. We were able to kill people part of the terrorist operatives. Now we're moving to killing people as part of governments, right? That's where so, we see the slippage. So what was the outcome? Sorry, I, I wasn't aware of this case in Venezuela. What was the outcome there? Well, he, he wasn't ultimately killed. They were able to shoot down some of the drones. Well, essentially what happened was that he was giving a speech. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro was giving a speech. I talk a little bit about it in the book. And um, suddenly he's in a relatively crowded city square and a number of drones start to approach him. Security services around him saw the drones, took up shotguns, and literally shot down the drones. And right now, that's one of the things that people tend to do to get around drones. You know, plenty of cases in the U.S. military of their anti-drone technology is literally a guy with a shotgun knocking it down, because it's sometimes easier than, than any other way of you having of doing it. But one of the drones got relatively close to him, exploded in front of him, and you actually can find pictures of him ducking and being rushed off the scene. And there were some light injuries that were associated with it. But it pointed to a real vulnerability, right? If drones allow anybody to get into the sky, and if you can solve the problem of putting an explosive on the bottom of a drone, you can move into a world under which assassinating world leaders with drones is easier to do than you want it to be. Mm -hmm. And that's the first case under which we saw, uh, it, was, it was clearly political opposition in his own state who was responsible for it. But again, no clear attribution of responsibility. Back to your problem of, can I tell who's responsible? Not always.
And uh, what about in terms of artificial intelligence? Do we have artificial intelligence-enabled drones that are entering the skies? Or Yes. So that's the one of the new frontiers that's going forward is to have AI-enabled drones. And there's the reasons why you would want to do that. Um, you know, Obviously, one of them is, to, is the very basic stuff. Would you want to have a drone that had an ability to adjust for wind or weather? You know, very early drones had real problems with an inability to adjust for wind and weather. Um, you know, and you would have cases where the early Predator and Reaper drones would literally not be able to fly if there were clouds in the sky or if it was bad wind that day. Well, you want to have AI to enable and stabilize the drone. So to, to have that doing that is not that complicated. Um, but there are increasing work on done, for example, with drone swarms and an attempt to have AI to enable drones. So one of the things that's interesting about the way that the AI enabled drones has been conceived of in the future is it's there's a real reluctance, especially on the US side, to have a fully autonomous AI-enabled drone. So the kind of Terminator model of you know, a drone that has the ability to kill you, that is flying and making its own decisions, the US has sworn that it will not do. What you will more likely see is artificial intelligence being used to scan through the vast amount of data that are produced by the drones. So you know, one of the things when you talk to drone operators, they say what people don't really understand is that US drones, in particular, I speak more about that, but this is common in a lot of cases, collecting incredible amounts of information. I mean, incredible amounts of video, incredible amounts of imagery, incredible amounts of other forms of data, right? Because of course they're doing other kinds of surveillance data that they're there. That creates a really huge intelligence tail that they have to analyze very, very quickly. And could you find, use AI in a way to quickly help you analyze the data that you're getting and to make more efficient decisions? And certainly if you're in a time sensitive environment, you want AI to help you do it. So my suspicion is when we talk about AI with drones, that, that at least in the short run, the idea that we're going to have an autonomous drone making decisions about who lives and who dies is kind of in the realm of science fiction. What you're more likely to see is the government investing on AI in the back end to help make decisions much more quickly. Right. The thing I worry about, though, is that, um, you know, if you are in an arms race, you may need to to win that arms race. Uh, keep giving more and more and more responsibility across to the AI yeah. um, just because it might be able to work faster or for whatever reason. Um, and it's through that sort of pathway that I that I imagine us getting into a state where these become completely autonomous. Yeah, and I think that's a real concern that we've got because when we think about, um, you know, the way that the US has talked about it, if you have a lead in AI and other countries don't have it, then you won't be walked into a scenario where you have to grant the drones the more ability to do things than they would ordinarily do. But we know we're not in that world. I mean, we know that China's putting enormous investments in AI, for example, and China's investing tremendous amounts of swarm drones that are designed to overwhelm US defenses. At a certain point, if Russia and China and a lot of countries with very deep, deep pockets on their military spending are investing in AI, you may get walked into a situation where you have to enable your own country mm -hmm. to use AI in a different way than you are planning to do so in order just to keep up. So the AI arms race may take us in directions that we're not already anticipating. Or right now we're saying, well, of course we would never do that. And in 10 years we might, right? So, so that's where I think there is a real concern that this arms race, not just in drones, not just in, in sort of racing to get more and more capable drones, but how AI runs alongside that and may change the kind of drones that we have and the things that we think we're gonna do with drones. I think that's a real problem. So are we seeing, uh, I guess, uh, in, uh, between Armenia and uh, Azerbaijan, this was an example, but, uh, you know, are we, are we seeing a shift in power uh, between nations, which is then leading to conflict, whereas otherwise it would have been quite stable and peaceful? I, I, we haven't seen it lead to a shift in power. Like, I would not argue that drones themselves have, have themselves produced a power shift because, you know, power is driven by so many other factors that's not just um, not just drones themselves. 
I think what I'm more concerned about, and I've raised this in the book that I wrote about it, is that the idea that drones will be inserted into conflict zones that are already a bit fraught. So we already have conflict zones around the world. Think, you know, the DMZ in North Korea, the line of control between India and Pakistan. Think the South China Sea between the United States and China. Already areas where there are two states kind of eyeing each other for different reasons, maybe eyeing a piece of territory or eyeing a piece of water that they think is important. And I think my concern here is that when you start to insert drones into them, how does that change the dynamic? So, for example, we tend to have, um, in terms of deterrence, a, a kind of set of tacit bargains that are about, well, I will do this and you will do that, and neither of us will violate our implicit tacit bargains. How do drones change that? So maybe I wouldn't be willing to fly over your territory if I had a manned aircraft. Maybe if I have a drone, I'm willing to take a shot. Because what happens? I just lose a drone at the end of the day anyway. And it's also not clear from a kind of normative vantage point that governments react to drones going down in the same way they react to manned aircraft. Like we've seen plenty of cases where drones get knocked out of the sky and governments can shrug and react very differently than they do with drones, with manned aircraft being knocked down where someone's actually been killed. And given that, a government could rationally calculate and say, well, it's not going to cost me as much. There's no pilot. And it's very unlikely that they're going to go to war if I do it. So I'm going to send a drone into this territory and try and rattle them. And we have plenty of cases in this where you know North Korea is flying drones over the DMZ and you know, people are both India and Pakistan are looking at the use of drones to monitor the line of control in Pakistan. And then when you look at something like the South China Sea, the U.S. and China sending drones past each other. Right. I mean, these are cases under which you can think about how countries might become more risk taking in a conflict zone as a function of having unmanned technology. And that's so what you're saying in some sense is that the steps into conflict are becoming more shallow. Yeah, that's a good way to describe it. And, and that you might just be willing to alter the menu of the things that you're willing to do just that little bit because you have less risk because you're not going to lose a pilot. Mm -hmm. And then the thing that, if, oh. if, you know, if we set a new tacit bargain, so let's say, you know, you and I are opposing states, we both get drones. We might be able to set a new tacit bargain that says you fly your drones this way, I fly my drones this way. We can kind of buzz each other, but both of us accept that there's a limit. Neither of us are willing to start shooting if one of our drones gets knocked down. You could reset a tacit bargain that way and it could work very effectively. Alternatively, you may not reset a tacit bargain, and it may be the case that you think it's a real provocation, but I don't. So you start shooting first, right? Tacit bargains are really tricky to set up because we have to kind of tacitly agree on what the rules of something are. And when they break down and when you introduce a new technology to them, there's all sorts of chances for miscalculation, misperception, accidents, conflict spirals, and so on. I guess when I was uh, mentioning uh, shifting of power balances, uh, you know, in these days, the bigger your population is, that that that's sort of uh, one of the things that you look at when you look at a nation's power. How many people do they have that they can throw into a conflict? Uh, are we going to have a situation where these old metrics are completely out the window and we just have, you know, who has the best manufacturing or who, who's the most wealthy or, you know, are we going to just see new metrics coming into play? I think we will. And I, I think the traditional ways that we've measured power, population, for example, number of tanks that you have, I'm not convinced they're great metrics for the use of power in the world today. I mean, you know, you can make an argument that we could simply measure power in the world by counting the number of nuclear weapons that you have. But that doesn't account for states that, for example, have no nuclear weapons, but have, you know, substantial international influence. Uh, for example, Germany and Japan, both of them are serious players, neither of them have nuclear weapons. And so the traditional mode that political science at least used to count and, and measure a state's power, how many tanks do you have, how many people do you have, how strong is your economy, I don't really think really works. I think you could make an argument that it might be more technological capability. It might be more the ability to influence 
sort of, you could even make an argument that has sort of global media influence, social media influence, and so on. The ability to set the terms of a debate. There's a lot of different things you could argue, production capability, all those different things that you could use that, that measure a state's power. And so I think the traditional military metrics don't quite work. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm also sort of worried about uh, power being handed over to non-state actors in the sense that, uh, you know, these days you, the United States government may outsource manufacture of some new aircraft to some company. And of course, that, that company may produce the aircraft, but at the end of the day, you need to sit a U.S. Air Force pilot inside of it. Right. Whereas later on, if you have some com company manufacturing drones and they're all artificial uh, intelligence enabled, then they don't need the soldiers and sailors and pilots. And they could become a power all of their own if they really wanted. Yeah, I think you'll still need a, a, a decent base to be able to, to project power. I don't think you would be able to do it entirely on the basis of technology itself. I think you could be in a situation, though, where you could project substantially more military power with fewer people which might be a real substantial advantage, right? If you have the technology. So think of the technology less as a replacement and more as a kind of turbocharged enabler. So I, if I have mm -hmm. real technological investment, I might be able to use a lot fewer people, but have a much more big, much more bang for my buck. You know, the technology also is a way of carrying influence with other states. So if you want to be taken seriously, having a powerful export market like Turkey has now done, has developed a powerful sort of niche in drone exports, is a good way to amplify your own power is a good way for you to be able to be effective in a way that, that is that because you're allowing other states to, to essentially get into the air in a way that they ordinarily wouldn't be able to do so. So how, how is the legal framework at the international level developing today? Uh, what, what's going on on that side of things? So the short answer is under the Trump administration, there was very little effort from the U.S. to do anything legally on, on drones. So when we think about um, the legal restrictions on drones, in a sense, there is no... Um, no international law or regulatory framework that applies to it. There are some export control agreements that apply to how the U.S. itself can sell and other countries are allowed to sell. The Missile Technology Control Regime, for example, regulates some aspects of drone technology, or at least traditionally did. There's been some attempts to, to redefine drones away from that. But in terms of sort of use, if you're asking about the international legal standards on use, mm -hmm. there's, there's almost nothing. Militaries have been very reluctant to submit drones to regular arms control agreements or to sign up to a code of practice. Um, actually, in 2015, 2016, the Obama administration tried to implement this. They actually tried to spearhead an effort to set up a code of practice on use of drones, saying, OK, look, you know, this is how we'll use drones. Everybody has to agree to not you know, use drones against civilians, for example, or so on. Um, and they attempted to set up a code of practice that was designed to do so. The problem is it fell apart with the Trump administration. And by that point, mm -hmm. the Obama administration was already a lame duck. They were already going out of office. There was not a lot of reason to say yes to them. right? And mm -hmm. so the U.S. efforts that were made very early on really failed. It, also in part because people said, well, listen, to the Obama administration, you, know, you guys took advantage of drone technology for all these years, used it in the way that you wanted to use it. Now suddenly you want a code of practice that restrains how everybody else can use it. Uh, in a sense, it's very hard to convince people to follow the U.S. to do so. At the UN level, there have been calls for an international code of practice or a regulatory framework for it. But in a sense, it's so heavily guarded by competitive militaries like the US and China, and they're dominating so much of the market that with both of them eyeing each other warily with no leadership on the US side because of Trump, nothing happened. So there really isn't an international legal framework on the use and sale of drones. So, so when America was ahead, they wanted to take advantage of that and they sort of, in some sense, missed the boat uh when it comes to uh, 
I mean, it's a bit of a shame, actually. It is. I mean, they, essentially, when they had a real advantage in 2010, 2011, 2012, they were saying, no, we're using this for counterterrorism purposes. They were denying most of the claims that were made against them about the use of targeted killings, and they were essentially denying any kind of international legal jurisdiction is the wrong word for it, but, but any kind of international legal entree into that particular issue area. By 2015, 2016, when drones were diffusing around the rest of the world, and they wanted to do it, in a sense, the horse had already left the barn. There was no real reason to say yes to the U.S. They had used it for all that period of time and squandered the opportunity that they have. And it would be very hard to get you know, the existing drone exporting states, the states that are doing the most exporting in drones, like the U.S. and China, but also increasingly Russia's investing in it and Turkey's investing in it, as well as Israel and get them to sit down and agree on standards for use and standards for sale. I mean, in a sense, China is taking advantage, selling to a lot of countries that the United States would not sell to for human rights reasons. So if you're a government that has human rights problems um, and you have a bad human rights record or you're engaged in a conflict, the U.S. simply won't sell to you. Um, but China will. And it's very hard to tell China will just give up these sales. They're simply not going to do so because the U.S. has asked, so, asked them to. Do you think... Do you think you need to see a Nagasaki or a Hiroshima to scare people into placing more strict uh, regulations on top? Or I would hope not. I mean, obviously, you never want to imagine any kind of you know tremendous atrocity, and I'm not convinced that you would see that outside something with the you wouldn't see something of that level of destruction outside you know, the use of, uh, for example, a dirty bomb with a drone, which has been imagined, right? That people would put radiological material in, 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 and fly it over a crowd. Outside something like that, it would be hard to imagine that kind of a disaster, and I would hope it wouldn't come to that. My hope would be that as the technology diffuses and it gets into the more and more hands of governments, and they begin to see it used for a much greater variety of purposes, that there comes to some sort of consensus among you know, the leading players that everybody's better off if there are some rules about how it's used. Mm -hmm. Right now, while the market is kind of booming and you're having countries take advantage of the sort of the latent demand for drones, I don't think that's likely to happen. But it is also in the case that technology does diffuse and then you get a kind of agreement about the way we're going to control mm -hmm. it and the way we're going to treat it. So my hope would be it would be that. So outside of your hope, if you were going to make a predi another prediction, do you think this is a sort of technology that's going to head in the direction of uh, sort of mad or is it going to be complete democracy? It sounds like you're uh, going towards that there's going to be complete democratization um, and then it's just going to be another aspect that we have to deal with uh, in international relations. My instinct is that it's going to be democratization. Uh, and I've argued that I think that's actually one of the things that people don't really understand when they talk about drones. Drones democratize the airspace. That's what really what they do. Um, because if we think about it, you know, if you were to go back even 20 to 30 years, who could get into the air? Um, governments? Wealthy private companies? And in some cases, wealthy private citizens with private aircraft. Otherwise, very hard to get into the air. Today, any of us can get into the air, but that also involves the Islamic State can get into the air. Political opposition can get into the air, right? There's no reason to assume a domestic actor inside the United States couldn't get into the air. You could have the far right getting into the air with commercial drones. It democratizes the airspace. And now increasingly, you know, if we go back and think about governments with constrained defense budgets that don't have the deep pockets that a China does, that the United States does, right? They might have been able to have a very small or token air force. So now they can get into the air. So I think it's going to diffuse much more like low end, like low cost military technology, much like we can watch the Kalashnikov that diffused across the world, right? The AK-47s and so on. It will diffuse much more like that uh, because the technology costs are so low that it's going to get into the hands of so many actors. And you will eventually have something like a terrorist attack. Drone. 
it's likely to assume that's going to happen. I don't think it's going to become common a sort of you know every couple of weeks experience, but at some point somebody will succeed in doing a terrorist attack with drone, and you will start to see more and more drone level violence. And I think it's less likely to become mutually assured destruction, more likely to become mass diffusion. My hope is that once it gets in the hands of more actors, that governments are able to say, okay, everybody has an incentive to engage in some kind of minimal norm setting. And I don't think it'll be very strong, but minimal norm setting, minimal legal framework that governs their use to make sure they're not being used against people that they shouldn't be used. Hmm. So at, at our current vantage point and at a level of policy, are you able to highlight a path that we could uh, potentially aim for or go, go, go down, which would lead to a more peaceful uh, and less, less violent world? You know, if, if you were given the reins yeah. tomorrow. If I was given the reins yeah. tomorrow. Um, that's never going to happen. So I, I came to a point. Well, if I were given the reins tomorrow, I would be attempting to, if I were the Biden administration, I would be attempting to table a set of, I guess, use frameworks, legal, whether that would be an international legal agreement or even just a regulatory use framework that would try and govern how this was used, particularly for things like um, vulnerable populations, refugee populations, um, but also in terms of domestic surveillance, or, or try and find some way to get some normative consensus on this. Because I think one of the things that worries me about drones, they're going to fly around the world. You're going to have a drones arms race between the US and China. That, that, ha that is already going to happen, right? That's not going to change. My concern is really, are you going to start to see drones used in a way that disadvantages the weak or the vulnerable in ways, mm -hmm. in, in a really serious way? So for example, you know, what's to stop a government using drones, armed drones, or just surveillance drones to attack its own population? What if you have a refugee mm -hmm. population that you don't want on your territory? What's to stop you from using drones on them? And I would like to see some sort of minimal floor of legal or regulatory agreement of behavior that governments will willingly say, we will no longer do this. I don't think you're ever going to get an agreement that says we won't buy them. I don't think you're ever going to get an agreement that says we won't sell them. I don't think you're ever going to get an agreement that says we won't integrate them in our military for ordinary things like watching the perimeter of a military base. They're going to do that. But if you can get them to a code of practice to make sure that particularly vulnerable groups are protected, that's what I would sort of table my energies towards trying to do. So your approach would, in some sense, be tactical. Yeah, yeah. I, you really, and you're never going to, you're never going to, never going to roll back the, the, the drone genies out of the bottle. Countries around the world are going to have this. There's going to be high end military competition. In a perfect world, you have some degree of kind of understanding or at least communication around their use, so you prevent accidents, spirals, miscalculations, right? So you'd want some sort of rules about how they're used at the international level, and then you'd also want some rules about how they're used in the domestic context, so that they don't you know, amplify the course of power of the state. You know, all you have to think about is what happens to a world under which we can engage in vast drone surveillance and we hand that to a pretty tough authoritarian state? You know, mm -hmm. should there be any restrictions on the use of drones to monitor? Think, for example, the Uyghur concentration camps, the China ones. Should there be something that is designed to stop that from enabling, you know, mass scale surveillance of that population? Or what if some country like Russia, for example, decides to use drones as part of an authoritarian crackdown. Hmm. At the end of the day, there's not much to stop that from happening. You can't stop a government that has the drones from doing it. What you can try to do is raise the costs by tying their hands with as much international legal or regulatory framework as you can. Hmm. It's, um, it's, really, it's sort of sobering when you think about uh, the, the downstream effects of uh, this new technology coming into play. Yeah. 
it's uh, what I think it, it, this might be a good place to wrap up. So I, I wanted to ask uh, sort of for a pro projection on, on uh, uh, do you, when do you think the first conflict we're going to see is that's completely uh, autonomous and completely drone, as in no boots on the ground? I think they're a fairly long way off from that. I think that's, uh, you know, most countries that are using AI are, again, using it to enable it. They're not willing to sort of hand over the reins of the conflict itself to just to just AI-enable drones. So I think the idea of us turning into kind of drone for drone um, or, or AI for AI-enabled conflict is pretty far off. I, um, I, I, well, I'm much more concerned about AI being used as a kind of quick shortcut that then enables mistakes. Like what happens if you have AI algorithms that are designed to rapidly process information, but they get it wrong. And then they mm -hmm. tell a, a, a normal aircraft, a normal drone, for example, to strike a particular target and they do so in error. Mm -hmm. So if you're asking me kind of where I think AI enabled conflicts are going to come, they're far more likely to come from an accident when the AI gets it wrong than they mm -hmm. are from the kind of Terminator style AI versus AI, at least in the short run. Uh, and again, I might be wrong about this. I mean, the governments right now, the U.S. Is, is essentially saying we will not be walked into an AI-led conflict. We're always going to have a human being on the trigger. And I guess that also gives an, an additional layer to the plausible dialability, doesn't it? If you if you can say, oh, the AI gave me the wrong coordinates. Oh, they said there was a nuclear strike. Oh, I, uh, yeah, I'd never even thought of that aspect. And it's it's a really tricky problem because th then the first question is you can have a, a chance of miscalculation and error. But you also have a question about an interesting question about responsibility. Mm -hmm. So, you know, much of our international or much of our approaches towards warfare presumes a degree of responsibility. You may make a mistake on the battlefield. You're responsible. I make a mistake on the battlefield. I'm responsible. What if the AI gave me bad information? Who's responsible? This you is sue the company that made it. <laughs> company that made it. You know, the algorithm. How do you how do you try an algorithm? I mean, this has been a serious question that's been made about the idea of having AI enable drone strikes. You know, mm -hmm. with a drone strike right now, there is a drone pilot who's sitting in, in a ground control station controlling the drone. If that drone pilot goes and drops a bomb on a civilian target and kills civilians, that person will be held responsible in a court of law. Mm. But what if we just had a totally AI-enabled drone? What if it read the AI-enabled drone made the decision based on a bad algorithm or based on faulty information or faulty parameters or whatever it would be? What if they did that? How do you hold anybody responsible for it? Mm. If no one was involved in the decision, you can't hold anybody responsible. And this is why from even within the military, there's a strong pushback towards AI-enabled stuff, saying, no, look, you have to be able to hold somebody responsibility there, responsible. There has to be one person who pulled the trigger and who's responsible. Mm -hmm. right? So that's... that's and we don't, we don't really have a good track record uh, to this point. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well... I think on that. I think that's a nice place to wrap up, Michael. It's um, it's really been a pleasure to speak with you. Um, Thank you. I've learned a lot. So uh, welcome back anytime. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it very much. Escaped Sapiens.